0: Welcome to Swordnut Radio. This episode is a short story written by Paul. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to get in contact with us, email swordnutradio at gmail.com, that's swordnutradio at gmail.com, or get in touch with us on at swordnut on Twitter. Want to shout on the show? Just send us an email or a tweet with your name, where you are in the world, and a random fact. This story is set in the 5th edition campaign world. It's the oldest myth that they have, and is dated to around about the early Bronze Age. That's about three or four thousand years ago. That was the date it was first written down, and the story that follows is the first written account that exists, translated from an ancient language. The story dates to much earlier than that, but was never written down. Many different versions of this story exist, and many interstitial tales also exist, expanding on the core myth. The content of the stories relates to the campaign world in the same way that the Iliad or the Odyssey relate to our world. They're very grand tales, and some of it might even be based in fact. The style of writing may seem a little odd, but was chosen to mirror the style of Greek epic, with its focus on oral storytelling props like repetition, use of extended similes, use of foreshadowing, and invocation of muses, gods, and otherwise external creatures to inspire the writer. So here follows the tale of the swords or Fathin Prametherin Vico <laughs> Had Depanever Sing, muses, of life and death, of war and peace, of betrayal and hope, of two brothers, and of the forging of the swords. In the shrouded dark, before the fifth great dying of the world, when man and beast strove as equals, and the birthing of miracles was as a summer downpour on the coast of Geth. In the time of the giving of names, in the wild of the land, in the gathering of doom, when the great spirits and demons vanished or hid from mortal eyes, in the great diminishing. Then was strife brought to bear on the three peoples, to make war, or to join with one another, to survive or fall. It was in this time when a great kingdom arose of all three races, and for a time held at bay the diminishing of the world. They gathered and toiled to tame the land, bringing the first harvest wrought of skill and sweat. For a time they grew and prospered, at peace in themselves, and secure from the envious. But it was not fated to always be thus. Fame of the kingdom grew beyond its substance and powers, once fey and potent in the guarding and growing, grew less. Strife raised at the edges, while the centre became rotten, as when a woodsman takes to a quaime tree in the southern swamps. The rotten core betrays the strong but thin outer bark and falls to the first strong blow, now useless to the woodsman and fettered. Fearing this, the kings of the land set all their resource to the defence of its borders, Waning powers were set into wards and barriers to foes, and the people forgot of the singing of crops and the making of great music to lift the body and soul. Against the threat and diminishing, the land brought forth less bounty, and the cities first filled, then emptied as the people starved. In centuries of downfall, hardship and constant warring, the land became split and divided. They had forgotten what it was they were holding on to, having let so much fall already. Despair gripped the nation, and yet still they strove. It came to pass that in the most desperate time of the land came a birth of great portent. On a bright midsummer day, the sun became darkened by Jura, the older of the sisters of the night, and remained hidden for a span of days. Now this was a great sign on its own, but then the second sign came and the people did quake. Kalua, whom some call the maiden for her influence over the waters of the sea and the body and the mind, came upon Jura and in doing so devoured both her sister and her brother the sun. Then did the first wife of the king give birth to two sons, each the mirror of the other to such a degree that they could not be recognised apart. The soothsayer to the king made magic upon the twin babes that each would bear a mark upon their naming days. And so, at the fall of the virgin's sister, one child bore five scars upon his right hand, and the other the same upon his left. They were named Hawat and Jutat in the presence of all who could gather, and the people rejoiced, taking the auspicious birth as a sign of good omen for the coming generation. With no way to discern the order of their birth, Hawat and Yutat were both raised as the heir, being schooled in statecraft and kingly endeavour, trained in hunting and the arts of war. As the king despaired of choosing between the two, they were so alike in temper, skill and craft that none was clearly stronger. The decision was made to gift to both the rule of the land. This was lauded as great wisdom, as it was thought that each would balance the other, giving strong leadership with even temper. And for a time, it was so. For a great span of years after the death of the king, Hawat and Utat took the land into a new age of prosperity. The people celebrated, but the twin kings and their council despaired for the future as the powers sustaining and protecting the lands entered their death throes. Their defences began to fail and the people suffered raid after raid of marauding pirates and barbarians. The kings took themselves apart from all others and in their own council decided to harness all remaining power that the land could give in a great work that would not fade or diminish. With grey metal, they crafted two swords, but with spirit also, giving of their own essence into the blades. In them was captured the most fey and fell magics the land had to give, trapped for all time in cages that would not rot or decay or diminish as the world around them had. But in giving of themselves the swords, each was imbued with the nature of the forger, and so was hope sown with the seeds of evil. But were not Hoat and Jutat good and faithful rulers? Were they not the very vision of nobility? Alas, no. For Hawat had in his heart a streak of selfish pride and arrogance, always believing that he was the firstborn, and the rightful sole ruler of the land. This he kept hidden, and in the darkness it flourished. To outward appearance, he was as just and noble as his brother, so that one may need to check the hand of whom one was talking to, to be able to discern his identity. Only one difference did Hawat present to the world, and a minor one at that, one of strategy. The way of Dutat, whether in battle or debate, was to win by peace to bring balance or to force his opponent to quit the field. Hawat's way was to so completely outmaneuver the opponent or to formulate a dozen strategies so that from the first move, victory and resolution was inevitable and decisive. This was itself a reason for the double rule of the kings, for where the reason of one failed, the reason of the others would begin. Throughout all his years, Hawat had harboured these feelings but had honoured his brother with the respect and fealty as Dutat had him, respecting the decision of their father and counsellors and seeing the wisdom in their minds. This would have remained the state of affairs in the kingdom until the end of the brothers years, but change came with the forging of the swords. In giving a portion of himself to the Fae powers, that part of him that hated and coveted had been taken, magnified and distilled within Hawat to be an essential part of all works wrought with the sword. As the twins Hawat and Jutat held aloft their blades, their edges reflecting in the light of the sun and the centers reflecting the light of the moons in swirling patterns to bewitch the eye. At that very moment, at the other side of the kingdom, a farmer beheld two birds, an eagle and a hawk. The eagle flashed in the sky, with the hawk at its wing. The birds banked and flew as one, scattering a flock of ravens on the ground. The eagle drove the greater part of the flock, but the hawk, in a dazzling show, fell two of the lesser birds before they could escape. The hawk tossed the larger of the kills to the eagle, and set to the smaller for itself. But while the eagle was busy with its prize, the hawk attacked from the rear. There ensued a great battle between the birds where many wounds were inflicted upon both with no clear advantage presenting. Finally, the eagle in one last effort reached out and slit the throat of its partner the hawk with its talon. Doing this left the eagle open to attack, and with one last peck, the hawk pierced the heart of the eagle, and so both birds perished. And the ravens returned to feast. The farmer had no skill in augury, and did not know to whom he could take these signs, so the portents passed out of knowledge, and the warnings lost years passed. Using the swords, the two rulers were able to defend their lands from the strongest invaders. On the battlefield, they appeared as whirlwinds among foes, bringing down the very elements upon the reavers and raiders. The sword of each never left his side night or day. In this way, bloodshed within the borders increased to the enemies of the land, such being the nature of the swords. But during peace, the magics did not go to sleep. Jutat had made his blade always with the intent that it should protect and preserve that which he loved. And it should deal death to those who would threaten peace and innocent life. His fairness and passion became the nature of the enchantment, and thus were brought forth and nurtured within himself through continual use and wear of the weapon. His subjects began to favor him and talk lovingly of him amongst themselves, quite apart from the respect with which they had honored him before the forging. Thus, they gave to him to the name of Ben Sedik, the Fair Blade, and to his sword many names, among them Devaya and Rithwan. But chief of them was Mefat. For looking into the swirling patterns at the centre of the blade, one would be reminded of a river, powerful and gentle. Severe and sustaining in equal part, so was the King known. Seeing this, and being warped further into hatred by his sword, made always with the suppressed jealousy and arrogance of Hawat, the twin king bent his mind in effort to taking the sole reign. First he suggested that they split the land between them, thinking to build an army and conquer his brother's lands, but this was met with derision amongst the councils of the wise. Jutat could think no ill of his brother, and so believed that he was succumbing to despair in the defences of the borders and succour of the lands. Although these matters were ever increasing, the despair of Hawat was that he was denied his rightful place of supremacy. In the years past the forging, Hawat became more openly cruel and harsh to his subjects, and lingering too long in the slaughter on the field of battle. As the sword and his hate consumed him, he cared less for the suffering of his people, and delighted in torment. To him was given the name of Brokir, the Foul One, and to his sword Deponet, and Havela, for the coiling serpent seen in the flowing tangles at the centre of the blade. Although identical in form and pattern, the two blades were now as different in character as is possible, conjuring these wildly opposing images in the minds of observer, wielder, and victim alike. Ever blinded by love for his brother, Dutat remained impervious to claims of disloyalty and mayhem on Huat, and so desired to lay these thoughts at rest that he always had his brother at his side in battle and in council to assert his trust well was Ho'at aware of this, and always in his twins' presence kept up the facade of brotherly devotion and kingly demeanor, but in the absence of Jutat counsel, Ho'at was at once back to scheming and sowing the seeds of dissent. For five years the poison of Ho'at was neutralized by the admiration of Jutat, and no seed of evil could grow. Despairing of bringing down Jutat by guile, the foul one hatched a plan of black murder against his twin brother. Some say that Ho'at conspired with barbarian invaders, and there are some who say that he simply waited for the next inevitable attack. In any event, a great force of uncivilised raiders broke the borders of the land in the largest attack that they had seen for a generation. This was the betrayer's opportunity to redress the balance. Diving into the foemen, spreading death around him with no restraint, for he was not yet mad enough to risk the destruction of the land for which he hoped for his own. Slaughtering even those who sought escape, with bloody abandon, Hawat carved a river of blood. Having committed to his plan, he had no need to appear merciful for the sake of his brother, and raged, as if the God of Death had gone mad. Now, Hoat had intended to wait until his brother King was at the centre of battle, and cut him down from behind, blaming the enemy and silencing all witnesses. But the spirit of the sword had him in its firm grip, and raged in a red mist in the centre of battle, unable to tell friend from foe. Over hours of battle so fierce that the dirt of the field turned to red mud with the blood of the fallen, the tide finally turned, and the enemy retreated as they could cut down from behind by Hawat and his honour guard. Jutat, seeing his brother raving from the crest of a hill, overlooking the field after driving before him, getting only as necessary to put his foes to flight. Beholding the blood madness of Hawat with disbelieving eyes, Jutat began to realise his folly in disregarding the counsel of the lords, and of unconditional trust in his brother king. For long moments the two locked eyes across the red-brown desolation of blood and vitriol, and knew what must take place between them. Hawat, gripped by the spirit of the blade Deponet to kill and control, and Jutat, by the spirit of his blade Devaya, to protect the land from madness and cruelty, knew they had come to a predestined conflict. The brothers raised their hilts to heart and lowered points to the ground in the ancient salute of single combat. They fought. His lips parting in a feral war cry, Hawat, charged as a bull in autumn, when the young powerful ones fight for the prize in purest aggression, Jutat stood upon the hill, silent and ready as the rock beneath his feet. With the clash of their blades, lightnings erupted, striking the ground around them, killing or stunning those who had not already fled. They fought, sustained by the energies of the swords, and drawing on what little remained in the land for a night and a day, not stopping for rest or quarter. Each cut or injury was bought at great cost to the other, for in fighting prowess and mystic power, the two were as one. In the twilight of the second day, Jutat realized he could not win victory just as his brother could not triumph. The stalemate was destroying the land, for as long as the duel lasted, more and more life drained away to fuel the brothers. Overcome by emotion, betrayal, love for the land, love for his brother as he had been, Jutat made a desperate gambit. Seeking an end, he threw himself at his brother, taking the blade between his ribs and wounding him to death, but this allowed him to strike with his last heartbeat at the unguarded throat of Hawat. Thus did the twin kings die. Thus did Jutat save the people he loved. Thus was Hawat freed. Thus was the balance restored, and thus was the kingdom doomed. But that is another tale. None can say what became of the swords for a thousand years, until they were found by Turiank the hunter. His tale is told in the second chronicle of the swords, but for the kingdom and Hawat and Jutat, twin kings of the fifth great dying of the world, the story ends here. This story is written by Paul Bennett and Robert Sanderson and is copyright 2015. If you've got any feedback for us or you'd like to hear more, get in touch with us at swordnutradio at gmail.com. That's swordnutradio at or on Twitter at swordnut. Thanks for listening.